Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Adi Angar. Hello. Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, your host, Sasha Wolf. And we have a special guest. No, we don't have a special guest, I'm lying. This week is the panelist episode. And I'm coming to you this week, or rather I'm coming to Adi and Ellen um, to, for some butt kicking, because we recently had a discussion at work and we want to try out a very, I would say, unconventional structure for building our big Elixir application. And that is the topic of today's podcast. And I'm looking forward to, <laughs> to hear Adi tell me why I'm wrong. So to give you the gist, folks, uh, the idea is what we're currently building. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you might remember an episode we had a while ago on Poncho apps and Umbrella apps and all that kind of thing. And that was also driven by a discussion we had at work at my job. And long story short, at work, we decided to build one single uh, OTP application. And inside of that OTP application, we have separate what we call bounded contexts that's kind of following the DDD teachings. And each of those bounded contexts is responsible for its own supervision tree. So basically, in the application file, we start up the uh, supervisors of the distinct bounded context um, supervisors. And then in there, that's implementation detail, whatever they need, they start. Um, something that came up recently in the discussion is how we then want to structure a code that be talks to the outside world, so to speak, right? Because we have our business logic that is all nice and dandy and follows basically visual Elixir conventions. But we also have like event buses. We have like a thing that's talking to like an external API, kind of going doing an integration through that, so on and so forth. And what we agreed on is for each bounded context is now to have something we call a ports folder. And if you're familiar with hexagonal architecture, I think it's a terminology and from there or onion architecture or clean architecture. Honestly, I can't really... <laughs> <laughs> they're like all like they're the same in my head. But having a ports folder for each bounded context and inside of that ports folder have all the stuff that then actually talks to the outside world. And that includes, like I said, event buses. That also includes um, actor repos. But and now there comes to be a very controversial thing. The decision we made is to also move any kind of web logic in there. So any web controllers, any uh, Phoenix um, views, although they are no longer called views, right? They are now called, what are they called? Tem no, not templates. I uh, formats. They're now called formats. And yeah, any any plugs that are specific to that particular bounded context, all that stuff would then live inside of that ports folder, port slash web. And we have on the higher level, we have the actual Phoenix endpoints, a router there. And from there, we delegate to either routers or the controllers directly of those bounded contexts. I would presume that we would actually end up having separate routers in that structure. And just to give a heads up, we haven't done it yet. The decision was just made. And honestly, I like it because so far we already had inside of the folders for the bounded context, everything that belonged to the bounded context, including a readme, like every, every bounded context has a readme laying out the basic structure of the thing. We have all the event handlers in there. We have anything you kind of need to work with that bounded context is inside of that folder, except for the controllers and all the API stuff. <laughs> that was in a separate folder, like higher up, web and there we have we have two endpoints uh things endpoints we have one for an internal api only reachable for like some internal applications and we have one for public api but that, that's honestly details and doesn't really matter but yeah that is the structure we're going with and the idea is also to maybe have like a bit more structure in terms of not only having a supervisor but maybe having something akin to an application module for each model context probably we're going to call it a context module that has like some callbacks we expected to have and that is a bit vague at the moment but basically the idea is is that each bound context is a unit of its own and that like that is a thing you want to do be able to in the midterm to also be able to ship releases and to decide okay this release might for example actually start these three bound contexts over there while that release over there only starts this one bounded context maybe for scaling reasons and other topics right so yeah
yeah, that is the, the direction we're going with. And I'm curious to hear what you, Adi and Alan, think about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I have so many questions, I guess, like a, a good place to start would be like, why... What was like the primary motivation to go this route instead of, you know, you know, like an umbrella application with separate deployments or company separate applications and just talk through HTTP? What was like the motivation to what's the advantage of going this route versus either of those? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I, in a nutshell, the answer is complexity, because in our company, we are a team of four backend engineers. So the amount of people that actually need to be able to maintain the system is relatively low. And the amount of changes we perform on that system where nobody else is involved and like, like where you need to decouple yourself from other people is also like everybody in the team can on a high level grok the entire system. But at the same time, we are split up into separate like smaller product teams. So we do have the desire and the need to actually be able to separate concerns a bit. But we honestly don't really need the complexity overhead of having, for example, separate deployable microservices because it's more work. Like it is more flexibility, yes, but it's also more work. And at the scale where we are at, of like four engineers working on this project, this seems to be the sweet spot. And like one reason why we are going for this structure is also in the back of our head. Like if we ever decide to say, you know what, that thing over there actually has diverged from the needs of the remaining application so much, let's cut it out and put it into its own application. But because because we already from the get-go kind of went, this is, okay, this is a self-contained unit, right? Like that concludes everything that needs to be started in the supervisor. That, in theory, <laughs> should be relatively straightforward. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, follow up. So I guess to understand this correctly, you did not go separate umbrella apps or, uh, and separate microservices because you didn't want to put the complexity and deployments and the whole infrastructure side, but you also did not want easily accessible functions between contexts that's why you chose to go through message passing as a route, and, you know, instead of like just calling the functions directly. From sometimes each. you do. I mean, it's a case by case basis. Like sometimes it's message passing, sometimes it's calling explicitly. Interesting. So it's a use case topic, honestly. Like it depends on the specifics of the use case. But like all of the interaction that is directly uh, function calling always goes through a top level module. It makes sense. Yeah. So why? Okay, I guess I should have asked this question earlier. When you start a bounded context in a supervisor, what exactly are you starting then if you can just call the margin and the function? In the supervisors, it's mostly event handlers. That's currently the, what's mostly in the end, uh, actor repos, that kind of thing. For We have one bounded context that is basic. I mean, like we, we are building an app that's also delivering content to end users, right? But we're not building the content management system ourselves. We're integrating with a third-party provider. So we also have one bounded context that is kind of providing like a, like a nice interface to the rest Got of it. the application. And that under the hood that also starts a Finch pool that is connected to that oh, service provider, right? Like the, that kind of shit. Got it, guys. So, so the when you, I should have clarified earlier. So I, I thought when you said you start bounded context and supervise, that means like the process that's responsible for communication. But no, it's it's just a module and anything related to that bounded context start over there. Okay, got it. So so the process isn't the overhead. Everything doesn't go through a no. process. That okay, that yeah. makes sense. Okay, yeah. I think that's like my high level questions. I mean, I have more, but Alan, do you have any? No, I'm still trying to see. Like, I don't see a big deal with it. If it works better for you, then, you know, it seems fine for me. And I guess if you have an issue, like with it architecturally, obviously you can benchmark that and see where the problems are. I mean, everybody knows that processes can get bogged down with messages, right? Yeah. I mean, ha have you done any kinds of, of checking to see, you know, like how does it perform? Does it perform well? Have you had to reverse some of your, your choices? I mean, just a reminder here, like, this is not necessarily all about individual processes. 
talking about each other. This is more about code structure and like uh, distributing responsibility, right? Not that, not every bound context is one process, but every bound context manages its own supervision tree, which might include some, sometimes nothing. I think we have one bound context which literally starts nothing. But <laughs> yeah, I actually think this is relatively not that uncommon. Sasha, I have seen application or application that the score does it too. I think it's a very good way of, so just to be clear, you just have a supervisor per bonded context, right? That's yes. basically like, yeah, like a context of process per bonded context that you put in the overall supervision tree. Good thing about that is you can turn it on and off with like environment variables or whatever configurations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and eventually, you know, when you're like, oh, I want to scale individual con- co- you know, context separately, all you can do is turn off a switch and literally deploy different deployments without it really complicating your infrastructure. That's actually, I think it's it's closer to, what's the word, like more, I guess, mainstream, believe it or not, for companies who anticipate splitting into microservices, but not wanting to put that overhead. So yeah, initially when you mentioned modern, modern context and supervised, supervised tree, I actually thought it's everything is process driven, but this is actually no, no, a lot no, no, more no. status quo for <laughs> lack of a better word. Yeah, cool. So what has been like, kind of interesting for us and like with the more controversial side is also moving all of web stuff inside, like having all of this like the self-contained bounded context in there. And it actually reminded me of a talk I heard a few years back and you also mentioned it recently by Dave Thomas. And like one part of that talk was about challenging OTP applications and how we build them in general and like making um, them more of like these self-contained components. And I'm not sure how, we, how you see, but it feels like like this structure we are now aiming for kind of goes into that direction. Yeah, I think you should. I mean, I, obviously I enjoyed the talk from Dave Thomas. I'm not sure if everything made sense in his talk, but for sure he had some interesting ideas. And I think that, yeah, we, we should try new things and see how they work because, I mean, there's always new programming languages, right? How many do we have in the world? Like thousands. So there could be new patterns out there that we didn't yet discover that make more sense. And I think it also kind of makes sense, like you said. So when you start up your applications, they have their own supervision structure, right? So it's kind of like separate is what you're saying rather than kind of combining into one app and then starting up the tree, right? That's somewhat common. It happens quite a bit. Like I've actually had an issue. Adi, remember a couple of months ago I I tried to meet with you to talk about something? That was because of that had its own startup structure actually. So it was like even though I started up the calendar, what, what was that? TZ data app. And then I started up the other one. It didn't quite register, right? That So that made a problem. I'm kind of speaking a little bit unclear, but yeah. uh, I had a problem where there was a library that started up a supervision tree that would do a refresh on certificates on a like interval. And for some weird reason, it even though we started up TZ data before and we set TZ data to be like the calendar database in Elixir, it didn't see that and it kept crashing all the time because it couldn't figure out like, what time zone it was in or something. So I forgot how I solved it. I think I manually set like the database before I started up that, that thing. But like, yeah, that like if actually, yeah, so some apps actually do run like that where you just kind of turn it on and it just turns on like that and does its own thing. I mean, it is kind of nice, but then as you can see, it can also have a negative side like what it had for me where I couldn't quite handle that dependency because it had its own structure. I mean, what about that kind of issue, right? Where like basically that app actually does become its own app and it has a problem. Like, how are you going to solve that? Am I speaking too vague again, Sasha? No, I guess if I can follow, I think that's like the whole goal, right? Like eventually, if the if one part of the supervision tree in, the, in Sasha's case context 
they want to build separate into its own app, you have already defined the dependencies of that application under that application, which is itself a supervisor, right? So I think that's the whole idea. I think your example is good, Alan, about you know applications and applications that have their own supervision tree. But uh, Sasha is like taking it to the extreme, right? Where you have probably your own Ecto repos and maybe talking to the same database, different database. I don't know, right? And also your Phoenix or maybe a, whatever web server you're using or a web framework you're using, it's Phoenix, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so maybe and maybe the endpoint itself, you know, different different endpoints or router depending on how you define to separate it in their own context. So you'll probably have like well because it's endpoint, you'll have probably multiple ports when you actually start the application with all the everything turned on in the super supervisor, right? Am I characterizing this correct, Sasha? Yeah, the, we're trying to hit like the, the the like a balance there, right? Because I'm um, like you could kind of go down that route of actually having I mean, one endpoint for each bounded context, in which all of those are different ports. That is something we deliberately decided against because honestly, we don't need it. That is the thing. We don't need it. That is kind of like where all of this structure in general comes from. It's informed by by making a, a decisions that make the least amount of assumptions on how this this thing is going to evolve in the midterm, but giving us still some flexibility and some some options to distinguish. So in this particular case, we actually do have two endpoints, but that is driven by kind of yeah by not maybe not business needs by infrastructure needs because some of our endpoints are purely internal like we have an admin interface that is all like that is communicating like inside of a kubernetes cluster right so one of our phoenix endpoints is only reachable from inside of a cluster and like it's an internal api basically an admin api and we have a separate endpoint which is actually exposed to the internet and at the moment the configuration is basically the same but there are some slight differences right like for example we have like all of the jwt and authentication stuff really only happens for the public api because well yeah, as an admin API, you first need to get access to the admin panel in the first place. But those are really pragmatic choices, I would say, and, and things that are driven by, okay, what, what is the status quo and how uh, what makes the most sense of, of uh, to structure it in a way? And we try to avoid doing structural decisions and things because, oh, it seems like like the next logical step, like doing things just for doing them, the sake, right? Like we try to avoid that pitfall. And that, honestly, I'm very grateful for the team I'm in because sometimes I get I can get very... Can, can, I can can get my head stuck into the clouds a little bit about like okay how kind of what kind of structure does make sense again I mean like podcast we had a while ago about umbrella apps poncho apps I'm personally fond of the idea of poncho apps I think they have they have their benefits and they're attractive but and that was also the proposal I went forward with to the team and the team very rightfully questioned honestly do we need it <laughs> and yeah honestly we, we we don't like maybe we do in the midterm but like the way we're going forward now with one application and structuring this way we can still do it right we can still reach for it and we have like a very good balance of people that are very pragmatic driven and uh, folks that kind of like to think about the mid and the long term that makes sense i guess one more question just so i can like see where you guys may be going with this more do you have the same database and the same repo or same database different repos for each context yeah we have different repos for each context and actually each of the repos also points to a different database that is in the same cluster it's the same that postgres database instance kind of but it has all of us have separate databases gotcha okay that's very cool. So like you're already building each context in a way. I mean, how, I mean, you call it context, so it makes sense. But like you're already building each context in a way that's like, you know, you're not relying on like transactional right. safety yeah. and stuff like that, which uh, because of how people define context, what I'm using air quotes, context in Phoenix, that's not necessarily usually the case. Yeah, people exactly. like do add tr- that the transactional safety is across context and they have 
trouble separating them in databases or even separate repos, right? So that that makes sense. Yeah, I think building something like that from the very start, I think is, I actually think it's very, yeah, I think it's going to solve a lot of problems down the road when you do separate. Yeah, I think you probably have to over-engineer early on a little bit more, obviously, right? Yeah, it's, it's always a trade-off, yeah. So, and we'll probably still have to, even building initial features, right? As the application is building, you could, again, transaction is like one of the examples. You might have to like hack up some kind of sagas or something where, you know, our, our, our 2PC, just between, even if it's within the same even process, you might have to do that. But I think if you do anticipate the application needing to be separated very soon or, you know, like in the near future, two years or so, then I think it's definitely good. Yeah, I think it's a fair price to pay. I would even, I mean, I, that is the thing, one thing I would I, uh, honestly challenge in that it, I think it's worthwhile to go down that road, even if you don't expect it to be separated. Because they're like something we already see now. And I mean, like we only started building this, what, like half a year ago, right? Something we already see now is that like with some of the conventions we're having with, okay, if you reach outside of your bounded context, then you should call like top level APIs only, right? The level of separation we have there is, it's just, it's very nice to work with. For example, we have like one part of the application that is integrating with a payment provider, like because because it's a subscription-based service. And that thing, that, that takes care of all the nitty-gritty details about, okay, it has webhooks, it tracks what kind of subscriptions people have, if they're in a free trial or not. But on the top level, that thing has an API, which is called does this, this is user premium. <laughs> and that part of the system is something I'm not very deeply familiar with because it's also a responsibility of another product team. But I, I do have the need in my part of the system to say, okay, some of the features here, they, uh, we behave differently on whether or not a user has premium access. And because we kind of had this upfront investment about a, like figuring out uh, what are the cuts and what are the, what are the contexts we want to have and like have this up this agreement on like only using top-level APIs, um, it becomes a whole lot easier to reason about a part of a system without having to know the internal details of another one. Um, in theory, of course, nobody would stop us from saying, I'm going to reach into that bounded context over there and like load data from, data from a database directly. Like, there's no hard separation between that. But again, because we're a small enough team, that's not a big problem. So maybe circling back to his I'm not sure, question right at the beginning is I would this is this structure is good for us where we are right now and also the size where we are right now. I would never argue, and this is going, going, going out to you, dear listeners, this is not the best structure you can go with. It really always depends. But for the company size where we're at and for the product size we're at, it seems so far to hit a sweet spot. Yeah, I think it's actually like we discussed, I think it's like very in you know like zero to hundred of like life cycle of an app. Like let's just like imagine, you know, like a X axis zero to hundred. This is like I think probably a solution that can sustain you from like, you know, almost zero to, you know, 80. <laughs> like we talked about, you could use simple yep. uh, flags to, you know, turn different uh, contexts on and off, scale them independently, manage them independently, you know, trace them independently, right? Like it allows you to do all of that. Yes, you load the entire application in the build, <laughs> the compile the, the entire application for every worker, for lack of a better word. But yeah, I think that's like the only flaw that I can think of right now. But it's, yeah, it can definitely sustain you for a while. I think that's I think it's a pretty good architecture. And honestly, like, I mean, like, if we wanted to, uh, that would require a bit more investment. About it. But, like, I mean, you have the mix file in theory. We could go down and say, hey, you know what? Depending on Flex, we only compile parts of the application. But Ooh, that's a, 
that's a tricky one to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I honestly don't think it's a good idea because, uh, yeah, it can become very difficult very quickly. Uh, but I, that, that is what I what I really like about, about this virtual tech, about the Erlang VM and about Lixi in general. Like those tools are available to you. And um, like I know that a lot of people are very fond of Go, for example, because it's a simple language to pick up. Me personally, uh, there, there's like one of the design principles behind Go, which is basically like, it, it's designed to be easy to pick up and it's designed designed to be easy to grok, but it also has this mindset where there are tools available to the language builders of Go. Like in generic, I think generics now is a thing in the latest Go version, but right, like for the very longest time, you didn't have generics in Go, but like in some parts of the language you did. And that was like a tool that was exclusively reserved for the language designers, but it was never available in user land. And the Elixir is literally the opposite of that, right? <laughs> Elixir is, you know what, we have a very relatively small kernel and everything that kind of is part of a core language is built on top of that and it's just available in user and you can use all of that yourself right like with again being an example of you could build the with macro yourself if you wanted to so yeah basically saying like, I, I like the flexibility we get here in the platform and i like that we are able to make this decision in this structure right now and that the platform is not getting in our way of choosing to go down a different route in the long run I do think, I think Go supervision is a little bit more configurable, more manageable. I think this can be done. I mean, obviously the whole website, which is like very not developed on Go, right? Like not even close to Phoenix. But yeah, I think there is like the state management between processes. So I, I think this is very much doable in Go. Actually, it was, it's uh, one of my picks is going to be a Go pick today. But yeah, I mean, like I said, I understand why, pe- why people enjoy the ecosystem and the language. It's, I honestly, if I would have to put it bluntly, I feel like Go is uh, presuming I'm stupid. I don't like it. <laughs> But yeah, I'm actually curious, Adi. Is I mean, like, because this is like the, the decisions we've been making in our team, and I mean, you've been part of a whole bunch of, of startups also, and of like beginning new projects. Um, is I mean, like, we we talked about it a few times in the past, but like the road now we are going down is like, what, what would you do differently? Like, what, what, if you could kind of be in a position where we are at, is there like, would you say no? I would do it exactly like you do, or is there something you would do different? I mean, it's hard to know without knowing all the constraints especially the business side of things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's yeah. what Alan said right away early on, right? Like, no, nothing is ideal. You, Your solution probably works best for you, right? Like, you know, it, it's it's very kind of depends on your use case. I haven't seen a startup that I advise that is going that approach. And that's probably because they don't have the luxury to invest that much time into thinking about engineering architecture. Like it's like the startup of the ones I advise, the what, there's only one that's like, mature enough to be post-series A. They're very, they, you know, early stage. They, they, they're like scrambling every day. <laughs> they deal with scale as it comes, right? So yeah, it's very, I think the architecture is decent in those startups, but like they haven't had the luxury to put that much thought into building an application from scratch. It's usually, you know, like one of the startups had to build a generative AI application in three weeks, operating at like a scale of, you know, hundreds of thousands of requests every 15 minutes. <laughs> so they don't really have too much luxury to get spend weeks thinking about that. I do anticipate them reaching to a same point that you guys have, right? Because it's not that much effort, assuming you've done a few things correctly. <laughs> it's not that much. <laughs> it's not a crazy amount of effort, like separating microservices, but it's not a crazy amount of effort to get to a place where you can conditionally start different applications as part of a container, right? Or how you deploy application as part of a build. So I, I do anticipate them reaching that point very soon because I think, as I mentioned, some of them are operating with a lot of scale and having the luxury to 
uh, have the option to conditionally scale each component independent of each other would be very important for them because cost is also a big deal for them. Mm. They, can't, they can't be scaling up everything 100x, right? So I think that's where I see a lot of value in this design, right? Uh, from like my startup perspective, like that with very little work, literally, but I mean, if the repos are also not even separated, you know, if we, <laughs> if we go like just, if you have an application that's just like everything is like roughly kind of a separated, but as long as it's in the supervision tree, with like just adding dependencies to each application, you can literally conditionally start them and conditionally scale them, right? That just buys you a lot longer of a runway until you have to redesign your application. So I think you guys have likely hit a good spot uh, without, again, without knowing all the constraints. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah. It's also it's all, it's also not uh, just to be honest here. Like it's all not uh, flowers and rainbows, right? I mean, some of the big upfront investment we made was like how we kind of want to structure our um, event subscriptions and publishing. And at the moment, it's a lot more coupled to Google PubSub than I would honestly like. So like uh, the, the local startup story is a little bit finicky. That is like one of the downsides. But uh, again, because we, we do have this abstraction layer between the actual event subscribers and publishers and Google PubSub. But in that abstraction layer, there's like a bit of a leakage one way or another. So I would, there's the idea to like in the midterm for local, for running it locally to basically swap it out with Google uh, with Phoenix PubSub, right? Like just use Phoenix PubSub locally, but when it's deployed to production, use Google Pops up, but we're not there yet. So like the local run, run story is a bit finicky at the moment. Um, same about configuration. Honestly, at an application this size, I don't have, I haven't found like a, a structure where configuration is easy to read and like easy to maintain. Like it, it's all working, it's all there, um, but there is a fair bit of boilerplate between some of the configurations, for example, the, the actor repos, and it's kind of hard to distinguish between, okay, this is the actual critical configuration over there, and this is just the stuff that needs to be written somewhere. <laughs> and that is a bit of uh, on, on the uglier side, I would say. But all in all, the amount of pain we're having with this system is a lot less than what we had with the previous one. And I think this is also like, what you were getting at earlier, right? Like we are not a startup. We are, what, what do you say it? Grow, I forgot what the, like, the businessy term for that is, but like a grow up. Um, like we are at a scale where we, we are a profitable company and we are now starting a new value proposition with a new product. So we are in a very lux luxurious position where we obviously don't twiddle our thumbs and just do nothing. We still have like a bit of a deadline ahead of us, but we are, don't have this financial pressure in the back of our necks that most startups have. So we do have the luxury of uh, being able to invest a little bit more time into thinking, okay, how do we want to structure this in the long run? Yeah, and one of the nice side effects is already that uh, like the existing system that is shipping business value is still around, but we were able to reduce the complexity, for example, from the previous payment handling that was a very much a homebrew significantly. Like the service is still around, but the last few pull requests were all removing more code than adding. And that is nice. <laughs> I'm curious, what is Alan smiling about? I typed what I wanted to say. I was just going to read it out. I'm in the pre-scandal stage, Sasha. He, by the way, he missed he miswrote Sasha. He wrote Zaha. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Old start for you. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, why why huh? am I in a pre-scandal stage? Well, you have you the stage where you're struggling as a startup. And then once you get some money, then people start being bold and uh, they uh, get into scandals. Yeah, actually, it turns like the company I'm working at is not really taking uh, big investment money. So like we, we are growing slowly or more organically. We have a, we have <laughs> That's... a bigger company in the background <laughs> that is like financially backing us, but it's not like hedge fund money, you know? That's a big reason why you're able to invest so much time. <laughs> yeah, that's like I, I have not experienced a lot of, you know, closer to bootstrap 
company's experience, uh, but the only one experience I've had with a bootstrap company, that's where, you know, even if the revenue was cutting very close to expenses, people still had more of a say. <laughs> uh, whereas someone external coming and telling you what to do, but yeah. But only like four people, right? Like, how did this come up? I mean, because it wasn't your original idea. You you said you're looking at umbrellas, you're looking at onshore projects, and then you're now all of a sudden you have this other structure, right? This is somebody proposed it, and you guys try to build something small, and then it just kind of made sense, and you just kept going with it. I mean, this is kind of where like that's very specific to our situation, but in general, like the the, the, the colleagues that I work with uh, among the what we call the backend squad, we have like product teams, and we have basically what we call squads, are the the, the groups of engineers that are belong to a particular stack. And what we have in backend squad are all engineers that feel comfortable with autonomy and ownership. So we don't really have anybody which would be considered a backend lead. If you would want to give that title out, that would mostly go to me. But that means that, like for example, the initial suggestion, I, I came to them with like, okay, hey, you know what, this is what I think makes sense, having the, that as a poncho app. And that was exactly that. It was a suggestion. And we had an open discussion about it for like an hour. And then the team like um, decided, you know, like I, I see your point of view, but the majority was for doing something simpler and like having one particular application that kind of follows the same ideas, but like having that separation of concerns, um, but not having the complexity and the infrastructure and deployment complexity of having separate services. I did work in a my previous employer actually in a, in, a, in a company where we went all in on microservices, and it has its benefits. But again, like we, we were at a scale that was a bit bigger than what we had here, like engineering wise, we had like what was it, tenish twelve developers but again like we had a whole bunch of microservices and that works good for like building the system but for example um, there was one point where there was a, a critical security issue in our docker base images basically and that meant we had to go to every freaking repository take the docker image the docker file update it blah 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 and honestly that's annoying and that like the level of flexibility we got there from having vested separate deployables I don't feel it was worth the effort I think, and I've said it in the past, and I'm going to say it again, uh, microservices is not really a pattern that solves a technical problem. It's a pattern that solves an organizational problem. The organizational problem is when you have an engineering team that is too big to really be like one or two teams, but rather you need to be able to decouple. Yeah, I see Adi shaking his head, but I'm going to stand on that ground. <laughs> I'm going to die on this hill. <laughs> Define what you mean by microservices. Can you do that? Yeah, I guess that could be, a better term would be self-contained services. Like I think that if you ask engineers engineers for a definition of a microservices, you get like, if you have five engineers, you get six definitions. Yeah, yep. That's <laughs> but like, let's maybe use the word self-contained services, right? Like the, the run of their own, the manageable, the deployable, blah, blah, blah. And that is like something I feel is a sort of an organizational need, right? Like you have separate teams that need to want to run and be iterate and be able to change things while not being constrained by changes from other teams. Of course, it's never achievable in a perfect world, but if you actually have your own code base, you can reign freely over that's more achievable than if you have like a big monorepo um, which doesn't mean it's not possible impossible in that context but there are more considerations you have to make so yeah I basically the hill I'm going to die on is that I don't think self-contained services make sense below a certain organization size that is the, the, the my perspective on it yeah I, I just want to talk a little bit about microservices I mean I don't know like I've heard you know, like, there was a think a microservices uh, pandemic I think what 10 years ago or so where Everybody's going crazy about this whole entire thing. I don't know I, I had this project that I I got given, or that my English is getting worse. This project that I was. <laughs> 
given responsibility for that I was told was microservices and CQRS and all this stuff. I don't think the guy could even spell CQRS when he was telling me what <laughs> CQRS. But like, anyways, that what I found out is that we did he, he didn't we didn't have a microservices based architecture, but it was basically a distributed monolith. If one of those pieces ever went down, the whole thing was fucked. Basically, that's basically what it was, and it was just horrible to debug. There's no telemetry. There's no like tracing. There's no anything. And you know, like that whole microservices thing. Like I don't know. That project really changed my thought process about how to build stuff, and and that's why I don't usually like to build like distributed broken up pieces and de- deploy them separately for that reason. It's such a pain to like turn on all the things, make sure they talk to each other through some kind of thing. And unless it kind of really makes sense. But to be honest, there's not a lot of services that can be deployed like separately, like self-contained yeah, services. Yeah. Unless of course you architect it that way, which is the big problem is that people don't architect that way. Oh, I need authentication service. Oh, I need this service. And they all have to talk to each other. And if one of them goes down, then the chain breaks and nobody knows what's going on. Yeah, that is also, I mean, like at the end of the day, it's about knowledge, right? It's about knowledge and especially about knowing the domain you're in and about using that knowledge to then determine what are the boundaries and what are the separate distinct things inside of it and domain. And I think that is my personal theory. I don't really have anything to back it up. But from where I'm sitting, I think a lot of what we consider legacy and hard to work systems come from either not really caring about boundaries in the first place or from presuming, okay, this is like, these are the boundaries that exist in our domain. And that's the end all be all of wisdom, you know? And the thing is, especially when you work on a new project or a new product, you know very little at the beginning about that particular domain. And I mean, I think this is an experience most engineers can relate to when you start building something and you maybe have an idea in your head, this is how it's supposed to work. And then you actually start working on it and you realize, oh damn, this is a whole lot more complex than I thought it would be. There's a whole lot more nooks and crannies I need to consider. And honestly, like big picture architecture and big picture problem domains, are not, they are not, they're not even similar. They are exactly the same, but exacerbated. So if you go all out on, for example, like self-contained services from the get-go and cut your boundaries, the chances that you are right with those particular boundaries are honestly very slim, unless you have like a whole slew of like insanely smart people working on this. Um, chances are that maybe some of those are right and some of those are subtly wrong and some of those are probably going to be completely wrong. But if you have like separate deployables and even maybe (laughs) separate languages, then shifting those boundaries around is going to be freaking expensive. But if you have like a single repository where you kind of follow the same principles of trying to have boundaries, but it's the same language, it's one application, in the beginning it just starts up, it's one big thing, it's still going to be expensive to shift those boundaries, but at least you don't have to jump through all of these hoops of like potentially bridging technology of potentially uh, moving a code from one repository to another. It just removes friction. It gives you flexibility. And then, like, if you actually continue to build your application this way, like, you're the certainty that you kind of figured your boundaries out correctly, and if you also have, like, a process to iterate on that, that certainty is going to increase over time. And then again, Adi, what you said earlier, right, and at some point you can say, you know what, like, we are relatively certain at this point that, that those boundaries make sense, the system kind of that works, and now maybe it's a good point in time because we also grow as a team to cut that out into really separate deployables. There is a principle I like to use very often, and uh, I found not that very people are very familiar with it. it it's the uh, last responsible moment principle. The last responsible moment principle basically dictates is that you make you, that you should 
and not make a decision until the last responsible moment. Because the idea is that if you make, if you wait for making a decision uh, until the last responsible moment, then you have the maximum amount of knowledge available to you. Then you know the most things and then you can make a decision that's hopefully, not always, but hopefully the right one or going into the right direction. But if you make premature decisions, if you make decisions before that, you make them with less knowledge than if you could. And that is like, if you look at like um, the structure and the structure and the strategy we're going with, you could, and then you look at that principle, it honestly basically all follows that principle. Like the whole idea of about going this way is trying to make the least amount of decisions where possible. And when we have to make the decisions to make them at late as, as late as possible. I think I followed that pattern of thinking when I proposed to my wife, I waited till the last possible moment when she <laughs> forced me to to do that. Then I made the best choice to live and uh, propose. It's honestly, I honestly think it is a very powerful principle. Yeah, but honestly, I think I kind of followed the the irresponsible one, where like I made a choice that I knew everything, and then I said, "Oh shit, I missed the time," <laughs> and I made a choice at a time when I knew it was the worst time, even though I knew everything. You know what I mean? Like because you do have a limit, right? If you yeah. kind of go back to what yeah. it's, it's like, usually I end up making a choice after that time. So yeah, I knew and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I think I knew I should have made a choice before. Yeah, I mean, the, so, the, hard, the danger there is like making a decision too late. And like what that entails, honestly, that depends on the decision. In terms of like engineering, that often means that you might like the level of refactoring becomes more uh, expensive you need to do. Because I mean, like, uh, for example, if you make it like, look on a very small scale, uh, like when it comes to the dry principle, right? Like don't repeat yourself. I try to, I guess I have a rule of thumb that I like one, one time repetition is okay. Second time repetition may be also okay. Depends on the context. But when it comes to the third time I'm repeating something, then I look into like what kind of abstractions we can have. But sometimes you realize, you know what? We should have just went with like an abstraction layer from the get go. And we had a good idea in the beginning, but you win some, you do some. In general, I found following that principle to be, um, be more more helpful than harmful and that at the end of the day is uh, like the hallmark of a, of a good principle. Adi, do you follow that principle? Yeah, and pretty much everything. I think it's like also like kind of similar to, you know, asking a lot of questions when you get like Monero to yeah. something, right? Like you, you will have you know, the, the, the most amount of knowledge only after you collect knowledge, right? So it's also before doing anything significant, the, the more significant a decision you're making in product engineering or life, the more data and more, uh, yeah, information you should have about that decision. So I think it's interesting, like there's a whole slew of principles that you can kind of derive from that. Um, Are you too familiar with like the the walking skeleton? No. The walking skeleton is basically more of like a shipping idea, but the walking skeleton is the minimum amount of things you can build to have uh, to ship a feature that is like all the moving parts are there, but it might be a walking skeleton. (laughs) I, I love the name. That's awesome. So yeah, that is like, for example, like a principle I'm trying to like, uh, ingrained our engineering culture because um, in the past we had there was a tendency to like co- overcommit to the scope of features right and to really only ship if everything was done and then now something we're not trying to do is like ship things early and often and like even if they're shitty right for example for the product we're building right now there, there, there's meant to be some some way of content suggestions right like recommendations and the very very first version we're shipping right now is already the, like in the structure of like how we expect them to be and they're going to appear in the app but they're literally going to be hard-coded in the back end like, for everybody because 
then at least the thing is already there. We can iterate on the next next iteration is probably going to be um, to put it to put the suggestions in the in our content management system. Just say hey, somebody swaps them out. But at that point already the feature is there, right? Like we can see do people interact with those suggestions, right? Like how do they interact with that? And based on that, can make decisions on how we want to build the thing in the future. Like do we want to have some kind of recommendation engine? How specifically? What kind of interactive content pieces do people actually click on, right? And give us more information and more knowledge to make the right call. Yeah. So if you would think of it from that day, the walking skeleton is kind of like one way of like going for this uh, last responsible moment, like how you can implement it. But yeah, I'm also very fond of the mental image. (laughs) All right. Can you define the difference between uh, walking skeleton, prototype, or MVP? Because I'm a little bit confused. I think that MVP, from my understanding, MVP is like bigger scope than a walking skeleton. Like an MVP is would could potentially be like a collection of walking skeletons, but like a walking skeleton can also be shitty in the sense of that you don't really uh, that you don't even expect it to stay this way from the get go. It can be hard coded data. It can be like a UI that you know is suboptimal, but where all the moving parts are already where are all the right. are going to make a difference. I think that's that's the key. Right, I think I think walking skeleton looks like it's a. I think it's more architectural than features. Yeah. MVPs usually, when we say something, it's like a product list of features that are like minimum. Yeah, yeah. It could be really well built MVP, whereas an yeah. actual product could be a walking skeleton product. Right, it's like how you look at it. It's like features versus architecture. Yeah, a product versus engineering. Yeah. And like prototyping from where I'm standing is a walking skeleton is something I expect to actually go to production and I expect it to stick around and then to be iterated upon while a prototype is something and that is something I've been very vocal about and every job I worked at is something I expect to throw away. People don't like that and it's far too often it doesn't happen, but that is my take on it. It I never happens. Honestly, <laughs> like, I mean, like, I've been working very well with, uh, with like being very vocal and being very upfront about and so far, every product prototype I've been building has been thrown away. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, it's, it's, it's never happened to me. It's never happened to me. I, yeah. I guess it's like, like being in a venture-backed area versus like having more flexibility, right? But the reason why I was last, I guess, like I was going to say, like a lot of MVPs are... A lot of production products can be walking skeleton and a lot of MVPs can be walking sumo wrestlers, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, walking sumo, indeed. <laughs> okay, folks, is there anything else we you think makes sense to address the context of structuring Elixir applications and and building products responsibly. No, I think we're good. Again, I, th- I think the conclusion just want to, we, we, we say it multiple times, it's like, it is subjective. It is like, like you guys said, like, you know, based on your requirements, based on research you do. And even after the same amount of data given to, you know, people in the same team, people might come to a different conclusion. Yeah, it's subjective. Uh, it's good to talk about it, think about it, try to present a case in an in as empirical way as you can, but people might still you know, disagree. Yeah, if I would have to give one, like to kind of come to a conclusion here, but if I would have to give one advice to uh, you listeners is also that don't buy into cargo calls, right? Don't presume that this one technology over there is going to solve all of your problems or that this one language over there, including Elixir, is going to solve all of your problems. But be very curious when it comes to the problem domain uh, you're in and then and find and try to get the maximum amount of information. Like I mean, Adi, you said earlier, ask all the questions, right? And try to make disinformed decisions. And like I said, uh, I find the last responsible moment principle helpful there. But so if my, if I would have to distill my advice 
advice to a single sentence, I would say make decisions at a point where you know the most things without incurring additional risk. That is, I guess, like how if I would have to distill it down into a single sentence. That is, uh, that is, I feel like also the essence of like what, what we've been trying to do. Yeah. Okay, folks. Then let's move on to picks. Adi, you wanted to do, do a Go pick. Yeah, so just out of curiosity, I was doing like, I was load testing a script that I wrote in Rust with Elixir. And I was just surprised to see the difference not being a lot. It was like also web component to it, but I was not counting, you know, the network latency as part of it. Just how efficiently Elixir uses the CPU time versus even concurrent Rust, right? Context switching is a huge, huge time eater, right? Rust was only like three or four times more productive. I don't know the number is irrelevant unless I explain the problem, but I can maybe for, maybe some other day. I was very surprised to see Go do so well. And I, I guess that's where, you know, the pure computation power meets good process time management is probably a good place to maybe consider Go as an option. And the web framework that I use, which was actually very easy to use and supports hardcore reloading and all of that stuff, it's, it's, it's called Revel. They haven't pushed a significant commit in a while, but so I would not like push in production or something. But like, if you really want to see the power that Go can give in certain use cases, I can have use Alexa for most of them, Rust for some and maybe very for specific use cases, I think Go is good where you do need, you know, good, like I mentioned, good like process time management. But yeah, it's worth considering. It's actually pretty cool. So yeah, check it out. It's uh, also what, what I like about it. I think many web frameworks in Go are very state heavy. They store states in so many weird ways. <laughs> but I think this is actually truly stateless. So it helps you build a more functional, uh, simple web application. And it's very performant. It actually, again, something that performed almost 2.5 times better than Rust did in, uh, in parallel heavy computation, which is so yeah, that's a pick. My video game pick, actually, I just learned about Rise of the Ronin. I think it's a PS5 exclusive. I'm, I'm a PlayStation guy, but it looks amazing. It looks like a, a marriage between between Neo and Ghost of Tsushima. The world looks like authentic, more authentic than you know many of the Japanese games that have been built, <laughs> which don't have a lot of authentic, very authentic world. It's a bit more dark than Ghost of Tsushima, but it doesn't look as hard as Neo. So I don't know if you guys have PS5, keep your eye on that. I'm I'm super excited about this game. Nice. I personally really enjoyed. Ghost of Tsushima that I've, was one of a few games I actually bought close to release and I do that very rarely. Yeah, I mean, just since Sasha mentioned it, if and anyone listening hasn't played it, if you have a PS4 or PS5, just drop what you're doing right now and play it. It's one of the best games of all time. I finished it a day before it was supposed to come out because I was one of the people who actually pre-pre-ordered it, the Gold Edition, and I could not take my hands off of the controller. I literally did an all-nighter because I could not sleep. I wanted to sleep, but it was such a good game. So it's one of those very rare games that I would, yeah, people should play Ghost of Tsushima before Rise of Ronin comes out because I have a feeling <laughs> this will be at that level. But if you're driving a car right now, please don't drop off your doing. Please drive the car. <laughs> oh, who cares about the car? Play the game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ellen, what, is your, what are your picks? Oh, Sasha's going to like this one. Let's start off. I have one Elixir pick. And there's a new newsletter that just started up. I'm not, I saw somebody start up about Elixir called uh, Elixir Merge. You guys seen this one or not? So we have, the only ones I know about is we have Elixir Weekly. I believe it's done by, I forgot his name now. That's done by um, the guy who did the Linter. What the heck? 
that one's called again. Sasha, you know what I'm talking Remy about. Remy yeah. He's not a friend of mine, but I've met him in person. <laughs> well, you guys are German, so it must be friends. No, I'm just kidding. Ah, okay. Yeah, All but I, you, 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 you met him already. <laughs> Anyways, and then we have the one from, I think they used to work together with Jose. I forgot his name now. Armin? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's a little bit late over here. I haven't been saving too well. Uh, so anyway, there's, there's two of those. This is the third one, right? So I just, I think it just got released a couple days ago or like yesterday or something. So I signed up. I haven't seen any newsletter come out yet, but it'd be fun. The the second pick I have is uh, a Rust one. As I said, you'd be happy. They're trying, so there's this company called Ferris Systems. They're trying to make a specific high assurance safe like kind of version of rust so they're taking the existing rust out there and then they're like adding on to it so that way like you can prove that the code that you write and compiles to the right code that you want you know because you have different factors right you got you got your operating system the version of the compiler some other things and if you mix them together sometimes you get inconsistent behavior and so what they're working on is basically making very very safe rust so that you can use it in cars airplanes whatever right so I think it's pretty interesting what they're doing, if anything at all, to see how they kind of are working with this big open source project, Rust, and then how they're trying to make that work for safe systems that require all this kind of stuff, like proving that code you write will generate the, the right code that you want. So it's, it's quite cool overall. Otherwise, I'm kind of rooting to make sure that we can start getting rid of some of the C++ stuff out, out there. Because, yeah, it's pretty nasty stuff sometimes. So those are my two picks. That's actually interesting. Um, I've, because um, I feel like the, the whole category of a whole problem domain of building software that has to adhere to this level of correctness, right? Um, that is a lot closer to traditional engineering <laughs> than what most software engineers do in their day-to-day. I'm actually going to I'm going to do a pick, Alan, because I'm inspired by that. And there is an article series by Hillel Wayne where he went out and actually interviewed people that used to work as traditional engineers, so like civil engineering, but also other types of engineering, and then moved into software engineering. And like because he started with the premise and the assumption that software engineering isn't really engineering. And I'm not going to spoil what he what, what conclusion he comes throughout the article series, but um, let's just say that his premise is not quite like at the end of the, the interviews, he doesn't quite have the same perspective. But his view is a lot more nuanced. So yeah. I am going to, that is one of the picks I w- want to shout out because it's a really, really interesting read and also super interesting to hear about people that they used to work in those very highly regulated industries and now work as software developers or engineers. And to like, he also hear Hilal's um, musings on that because I feel like he is a very, very sharp mind. And my second pick is purely for entertainment. I've recently watched Vinland Saga. It's a Netflix uh, anime and it's like basically about Vikings and it's about the Danish invasion of of England in that I think it was the 13th century um, or was it the 11th century honestly I don't remember um, but it's it's pretty great animation like it just looks gorgeous and I'm always a sucker for good animation honestly but it's also like it's an interesting story I feel and so yeah it's a bit of more on the bloody side so if that is not your cup of tea then I would suggest to maybe skip on this one but uh, if you're not bothered by bloody animes and you like animation as much as I do then check out Vinland saga on netflix it's been really fun watch okay folks then was a pleasure as usual and i hope you all have a great day and i hope you enjoyed listening to us rambling about architecture and structure and best practices and continue to drive your car if you're in a car i hope uh, you found our voices also soothing to fall asleep and hope you all have a great day and tune in next time with another episode of elixir mix